I'm going to tell you a Christmas story, a Christmas story that God enabled me to be a part of this year. As some of you may or may not know, as you cross into downtown Wausau, on Stewart Avenue, there's a gazebo on the left-hand side of the street. And all through the summer, homeless people every Friday night would go down to the gazebo and gather. And uh, two friends of mine, Brian and Linda, would take food down there to those homeless people. Well, as it got into late fall, one day a guy showed up and Linda thought that she knew him. And she began to talk with him. His name was Myron. And lo and behold, they had gone to Edgar High School together and they had graduated in the same class at Edgar High School. As she talked to Myron, she discovered that he had gone through a very bad divorce. His ex-wife had turned his three children against him, who are now in their middle 20s, and they had not talked to or seen their dad for 10 years. His birth family, uh, because he had dissipated his life with drugs and alcohol, his birth family did not have anything to do with him either, and they had not seen him for that many years as well. And Linda and Brian decided they'd try to get Myron back up on his feet. And so they called the Bridge Street Mission, which is now a rescue mission, to see if they could get a room for him and a bed uh, where he could get some regular meals and um, get some teaching in the Word of God and perhaps get himself back to where he'd want to work a regular job again. So about four weeks ago, uh, they called and, they, and the Bridge Street Mission had a room. And so... They went downtown to pick Myron up. Well, when they found Myron, they discovered he had throat cancer. He couldn't take anything by mouth. He was feeding himself through a tube in his stomach, and he looked terrible. And they took him over to the Wausau Hospital Emergency, and they uh, checked him in over there, and they said he is so undernourished that we can't treat him. It would kill him. And so we're going to have to try and build up his body so that we can treat him. And so they checked him into the hospital. A week later, they called Linda and said, we need his bed, you're going to have to come and pick him up and take him over to the Bridge Street Mission. Well, that was on a Saturday about three weeks ago, and Linda called me and said, I'm not feeling well. Would you go with my husband Brian over to the hospital and pick Myron up? And so I said I would. And so we went over to the hospital and got him. Myron couldn't really speak in sentences. He could just kind of make words a little bit. And he indicated to us that he wanted to stop at a convenience store before we took him to the Bridge Street Mission. So we stopped at this quick trip over here by Menards. And when Myron went into the store, I said to Brian, have you and Linda ever asked Myron if he has a personal relationship with Jesus? And Brian said, no, we haven't. And I said, Brian, today is the day. We will not leave the mission until he has heard the gospel today. And Brian said, okay, we'll do that. So we got him over to the mission and checked him into his room. He was, I had told Linda and Brian at Highland Church our benevolent fund would pay a couple of months rent for him so he could stay there and know that he would have a bed. He was overjoyed to be able to have a bed to know it was going to be warm. All he wanted to do, he said, he just wanted to take the longest nap he had ever taken. And uh, Brian said to him, Myron, we'd like to know if you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And he looked at us and he gave us two thumbs up and a big smile. 
And Brian said to him, when did you accept Jesus as your Savior? He said, August. And so I said to him, Myron, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the gospel. And so we began to talk about being born in sin and sin bringing death into uh, our lives. And Jesus paid the penalty, died on the cross for us. And I asked him, do you believe this? He said, yes. Do you believe this? Yes. What about this? You asked Jesus to be your Savior? He said, yes, I have. I said, Myron, you have made the most important decision that any human being could make. And I would like to pray with you before we leave. And I put my hand on his shoulder, and his shoulder was all bone. That's all there was, was bone there. And I prayed for Myron, and we left. And that was Friday afternoon late. Myron died in his sleep Saturday. And Linda found him Sunday morning in his room. And she called me. When we checked Myron in, he did not have enough personal belongings to fill a carry-on suitcase. And she called me and she said, what am I going to do? Nobody knows him. Here's a man that nobody wanted, nobody cared about, nobody knew even where he was, but he spent Christmas with Jesus. And she said, I know one of his sisters. I said, somebody in the family needs to take responsibility for his body. And so she called a sister who lived in Edgar, and she said that she would do that. And I said, tell her that I'll do a funeral for him. And so she did. And in the, in the, in the last month, Linda had been talking to two of his daughters to try and interest them in reconciling with their dad. And they said, absolutely not. They wouldn't do that. And so two of his daughters and a sister came in to talk about the funeral. We held a funeral here at Highland Church. And nobody wanted any visitation. His birth family was not talking to his children for what they did to his dad, and his children weren't talking to their birth family. So nobody wanted a visitation. And as I laid the funeral out for him, I ex explained this to him. You know, Myron left some things behind in your hearts called emotional pain. And you'll carry those the rest of your life unless you decide to forgive Myron for what he's done. And I said, as I do the funeral, I want to just use it as a time of encouragement for people as well. And so we came, the funeral was two weeks ago, Friday, and his children and their spouses sat over here, and his other family sat over here, and here I am. I am the last person that talked to Myron alive, and you know, I only knew Myron for 45 minutes. That's all I knew him out of his whole life, 45 minutes. And so as I gave the funeral message, I talked to them about Myron's story and explained what had happened. And Myron had acknowledged accepting Jesus. He did have a Bible. And we talked about that. And <clears throat> at the end of the funeral, they played a song I had never heard. It's a Christian song. It was called Broken Things broken things. And it talked about uh, the man with a broken life and a ruined life. I had told them during the funeral, I don't have to tell you about the problems Myron had. He took some wrong turns and he ended up in a lot of darkness. But I said, the Lord never rejected him. The Lord never threw him away. He continued to call to Myron and the day came when Myron accepted that call. And when the funeral was over, I went down and 
gave my condolences to his children and their spouses, and then I went over and, and uh, did the same with his family. And everybody, almost everybody was crying. They were just crying very softly or they had tears in their eyes. When I was done with that, I walked to the back of the church because my wife was standing there and a most unusual thing happened. Nobody in that church moved for 10 minutes. They just sat there. They never moved. And all of a sudden, part of his family got up here and they walked across the aisle to his children. They began to talk to them. And there were cousins there who had never met each other. They ended up speaking for an hour and 20 minutes together after the funeral. God did an amazing healing in the hearts of these people. It was, it was just wonderful to watch what he had done. The cousins decided they'd get together after the holidays and have a big get-together because they had not met each other. In 10 years, they hadn't seen each other. Only God can do things like that. I could hardly believe that I knew him only 45 minutes. And yet God put him in my life in a place where, put me in his life in a place where he wanted me to be. What a wonderful Christmas present. Fritz talked about grace, and certainly that was an act of God's grace and mercy. A wonderful Christmas present for me to see and be a part of. So, um... That's my Christmas story. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to just talk about a few verses there. Um, before chapter 8 is what? Chapter 7, right? Chapter 7 is a very difficult chapter in Romans. You hear Paul say, say things like this, the good that I would I do not, but the evil that I do not, would, would not that I do he said, O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And then we move into chapter 8. There used to be a show on TV. I don't think there's hardly anybody in the audience old enough to remember it. It was called The Wide World of Sports. In the introduction to that show, they showed a ski jumper sliding off the side of the ski jump. And Mikey remembers that, right? Then they showed a figure skater getting a gold medal. And the announcer would say, from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory, the wide world of sports. And that's what happens when we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8 in Romans. It is from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory. So I'm going to read here the first four verses. You can read along if you have your Bibles. It says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Paul never tires of talking about the gospel. He never gets tired of it. But you know, Christians in church sometimes get tired of hearing the gospel. They say, well, that's where it's all started. Let's move on a little farther. 
But you know, the gospel is always fresh. I wake up every morning. The first thing I say to the Lord is, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the gift of life through your son, Christ Jesus. It is the most precious gift that a person could ever receive. And a man named Myron is now standing before his Savior, realizing the greatness of the decision that he made in the month of August. So let's turn to the text. Paul begins with four words we want to look at. First he says, therefore. Therefore, whenever we see that word in Scripture, what does Sam and Andrew tell you it means? It means, what's it there for, right? What's it there for? Paul is referring to the preceding chapter of Romans 7. He has built up his argument to this crescendo like a musical conductor, and he says to us, because of all that has proceeded, I can now say to you, therefore, there is now no condemnation. The word now is a time word which speaks to the fact of the change that occurs in a condemned person who has come to life in Christ. When a person accepts Jesus, um, and some of you may be here on Sunday, I did a communion service and I talked about uh, one of our children. We have five children and as they got older, we took them out to... Uh, for dinner by themselves as a birthday gift, and they always enjoyed that. And we had one daughter who always ordered dessert first. She wanted to eat her dessert first because she said, I'm always too full at the end of the meal to enjoy my dessert, so I want to have my dessert first. She's 54 years old, and she still eats her dessert first when she goes out. And I said, Christianity is a dessert first religion because when you become a Christian every benefit of Christianity is given to you at that time everything uh, present and future every benefit belongs to you you may not realize all of them but they're all there a living hope in Jesus Christ an inheritance set in heaven for you the power of the Holy Spirit to keep and guard what God has given you as you live as a Christian. And that's what happens now, now. About a month ago, I talked to a young woman who was born in Vietnam. Her parents were animist. They worshiped spirits. They moved from Vietnam to Texas when she was nine years old. And then uh, they moved, at nine, they moved to Hawaii from Texas. And uh, she met, she, when she was 16 years old, she met a man, a young American, when she was 18, and she married him. And they moved back to the United States. And uh, uh, the way I happened to meet her, somebody who works with her brought her to church about, well, it was about a month and a half ago. And it was a, she was a first-time visitor, and the woman introduced her to me and said she's got some issues and she would like to talk to a pastor. So I set up an appointment with her, and she came in to see me. And uh, she's about 24 years old, has a three-year-old son. She, the man she married was a, an atheist, and she would not accept his atheist teachings, and so he divorced her. And as we began to talk, 
She was going to a church. She was reading her Bible. But I discovered she didn't know she was born in sin. She didn't know that sin brought eternal death into her life. She didn't know that Jesus had come to make the payment for her sin. And we walked through all of these things together. And when we got done, I had her read these scriptures out of the Bible to me. And I said to her, would you like to pray to ask Jesus to forgive your sins and be your savior? And she said, yes, I would really like to do that. And so we prayed together. And when we were done praying, I looked up and she looked up and she was crying. And she said, I don't understand what's happening to me. And I said to her, I'll tell you what's happening. The Holy Spirit has come to live within your heart and he has touched you to the very core of your being. And God is going to change things for you and things will be different now. Now, they were so different that when she came in to see me a week later, she said, the people at work, my coworkers said, what's happened to you? Something is different. And there was great animosity between her and her husband. Although he did not have the right, he had told her that she could not bring her little boy to church and she couldn't tell him about Jesus. Well, she's out of a different culture and she didn't totally understand that she could do that and so she wasn't doing that. And we talked about the relationship that she and her husband had. And I explained to her that despite her feelings for him, she needed to forgive him because that was a cause of so much of the pain in her heart. And she was willing to do that. She was willing to forgive him. We uh, prayed through it. I showed her what she would have to do. There's two things you have to do to forgive somebody who has hurt you. One, you have to release them by saying to the Lord, I will no longer Blame them for what they did to me. Doesn't mean that you agree with it, but I'll no longer blame them for what they did to me. And number two, I am willing to pay for the emotional pain that they have caused me. You see, when somebody hurts you, they deposit pain into your heart. You may have been hurt as a child by your parents. I can't tell you how many people I've seen that have had that happen to them. And they carry that pain for years and years and years. And the only way to get rid of it is to forgive. And so she said, I would like to do that. And I showed her how to, to do that. We prayed about it and walked through it. She came in to see me two weeks later. She said, after I forgave my husband, when I talked to him on the phone, I didn't get angry and shout anymore. I was quiet. And he couldn't quite understand what was going on. And uh, he said to me at a point, I guess it's okay if you take your son to church and you tell him about Jesus. What a marvelous thing that God can do. Therefore, now there is no, no condemnation. The word no in English is a weak translation of the Greek. It is a much stronger negative in the Greek. And one commentator put it this way. It means not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he never can be. It is impossible. When we sin as believers, we don't come under condemnation. What do we come under? Conviction. We come under conviction. And that conviction doesn't, doesn't break our relationship with God, but it, it makes him more distant to us. And so how do you deal with conviction? When you have conviction in your heart, you do it by repenting of your sin and asking God to forgive you. And that removes the conviction that's in our hearts. But there is no condemnation.
The fourth word is condemnation. The word condemnation is a forensic term which includes both the sentence and the execution of it. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. I want to show you what, um, what it means to be under condemnation. Condemnation is a terrible situation. Now I'm going to, I'm using the NIV here, but I'm going to read this verse out of the Amplified for you. This is what it says. It says, for if we go on willfully and deliberately sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a kind of awful and terrifying expectation of divine judgment and the fury of a fire and a burning wrath which will consume the adversaries who put themselves into opposition to God. Now, Pastor Jeff, when, when I talk to him about using something out of the Amplified Bible, he always laughs. He says to me, that's the women's Bible. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's a lot of extra words in it. That's why I call it the women's Bible. There are only two classes of people in all of the world. Those who belong to God by virtue of their faith in Jesus and those who don't because of unbelief. Goodness counts for nothing. The nicest unbeliever in the world is under the same condemnation as the most heinous murderer. The only true freedom in this world comes when a person has been set free from the condemnation of their sin by the shed blood of Christ. And that's why Paul exclaims, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I've worked with a number of Catholic people. You know, in our congregation, the two biggest groups we have are former Lutherans and former Catholics. And uh, the Catholics suffer under a work-righteous attitude. They think that goodness, goodness has to have value in the eyes of God. I uh, visited a friend of mine in Appleton not too long ago. He was raised in an ungodly home. His father was a Catholic, but not uh, in name only. His mother was nothing. And he said in all his life growing up, he never heard his father say one thing about religion except one evening when he and his three brothers, he and his two brothers and his dad were going to church. It was a snowy evening, and they got a little ways from their home, and they got stuck. The car got stuck. And his dad was trying to get the car out, and his boy said to him, Dad, we're a lot closer to home than we are to church. Why don't we just take the car, get it out, and go home? And his dad said this to him, If I don't get to church, I'm going to go to hell. If I don't get to church, I'm going to go to hell. And they worked till they got it out, and they got the car to church. There is no freedom in works. Paul goes on to describe... Uh, that freedom to us in verses 2 through 4, where he says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. And what law is he talking about? He's talking about uh, the law of sin and death, which is a natural, a spiritual law. I'll talk about that in a minute. And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us 
who do not live according to the law, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you could live a perfect life, could you go to heaven? Raise your hands if you think you could go to heaven if you lived a perfect life. Well, you could. You could. God's standard is perfection. If you could live a perfect life, you could go to heaven. But the problem is, we're all born in sin. When my two-year-old son threw a sippy cup on the floor because we gave him water instead of apple juice, guess what he was demonstrating? That he was a sinner. And you have only a 100% chance of sinning. That's all it is. And so you can't keep the law. And I can't keep the law. And the result of that is <clears throat> the law condemns us. Um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul recognized this. He said, I see in, the, in my members a law, the law of sin. God has put in nature natural laws and spiritual laws. They cannot be changed. The law of gravity is a natural law. The law of gravity, it has two principles. One, it is constant. It's in operation 24 hours a day. If I drop my Bible on the floor in the evening, it'll fall down. If I do it in the morning, it'll fall down. And it's consistent. It always operates the same. If I let go of it, what direction will it fall? Down. If I take it with me on vacation and drop it, it'll go down. If I take it somewhere else and drop it, it'll go down. That's how a law operates. The law of sin and death operates to bring people to death. Now, you might remember uh, something called the law of the Medes and Persians uh, in the story of Esther. In the story of Esther, you'll remember Haman, who was the, the wicked guy, got King Xerxes to make a law that on a certain day, all the enemies of the Jews could kill the Jews and take all their property. When Esther discovered that deception and told the king about it, he was very upset. But this is what he said to her, the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. I cannot change that law. It's been made, and it has to stay. It can't be made, unmade. So what was the answer to that? The answer was to create a greater law, another law. He wrote another law that said on that day, the, uh, and the Jews could defend themselves against their enemies. The Jews could kill their enemies and take their property. And so they were saved. And so what does Paul say here in Romans? He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. God has a greater law. It is called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that law sets us free from the law of sin and death. Paul calls it the law of the spirit. That is a capital S in your Bible. The law is the message of the gospel, and anyone who believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ comes under the freedom of that law because of the presence of the Holy Spirit coming to live within you. And I want to I show you a picture of that to try and help you understand it better. I'm not going to draw the picture. I already have it drawn.
And my sound man said, bring it up into the light so everybody can see it. Spiritual anatomy of a Christian. We have three parts. We have a God that's three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have three parts as well. If you turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23... Paul says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our body is five senses, touch, hearing, smell, uh, sight, and taste. That's what our body is. Your soul is what you are without your body. And your soul consists of your mind, emotions, and your will. The body and soul, when Paul talks about the sinful nature, that's what he's talking about. The body and soul. Do you know what you're looking at here? You're looking at an unbeliever with a black heart. He has a spirit, but his spirit is dead. It's dead. It's unresponsive. When the spirit of life comes into you, what he does is he regenerates your spirit. He regenerates your spirit. The Holy Spirit... Mm. Dry. Holy Spirit comes to live within your heart. When that happens, what he does is he brings into you the ability to communicate with God. He brings into you the power to overcome and get victory over sin in your life. He brings into you the ability to discern the word of God. So that, uh, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tell us this. All right. Verse 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was the a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Uh, take a look now at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 30, 26 and 27. It says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, <clears throat> Paul says we don't walk after our sinful nature, we walk after the law of the spirit of life. And what does that mean? 
In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, In Christ, we are a new creature. The old is gone and the new has come. What happens to your body when you become a Christian? Nothing. It stays the same. What happens to your soul? Your soul is redeemed. It is redeemed, but it is not changed, okay? You still have temptations. You still have desires to sin. Your spirit is regenerated. In the book of Titus, it says the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You get a new, you get a new commander in the house. This is the place from which God wants to rule your person. So as you read and obey the word of God and the Holy Spirit gives you the power to do that, what happens? You say to your eyes, don't look at that pornography anymore. Don't look at it anymore. Have you ever said to yourself, I made myself take a walk today? You know what you're doing? Your mind is telling your body you need to go for a walk because you need the exercise. Your body doesn't want to do that. So when you get out on the road, what does your body say to you? Let's not walk too far. And your mind says, listen, you got to do two miles today. And that's how sin works. Sin pulls on our mind, emotions, and will. But now we have a new boss in the house. And the new boss says to your mind, don't think about those things anymore. God says you shouldn't think about those things. Don't do it. He says don't get involved in, in other issues that he says I don't want you to be involved in. And that's what happens when we become a believer. We get a, a new spirit. We, now we get a, our spirit gets renewed. Another word for spirit is heart. Holy Spirit comes to live within our heart. I often tell people uh, when they have accepted Christ, I always tell them about the Holy Spirit. The fact that the Holy Spirit is living within them and now he will manifest his power in your life so that you will know that you are different. You will know that you are changed. John came in to see me. John was referred in by a, a co-worker who goes to church here. John had been an alcoholic for 26 years. He would not been in church in 26 years. He was four months into a divorced from his wife. He had anger issues. He said to me, on the way home from work some days, my stomach says to me, you don't have to feed me anything. Just put some alcohol in me when you get home. And then he looked at me, and this is what he said. He said, my friend said you could fix me. I said, John, I don't fix anybody. I can't fix anybody but I can take you to the one who can fix you. And we began to talk about Jesus. John was a guy who had totally come to an end of himself. And so it was about two and a half hours later. We ended up uh, forgiving his father who had persecuted him, abused him, his wife, the situation he had there his own sins. He had to deal with his own sins, and we talked about his own sins. And finally, he asked Jesus to forgive his sins and be his Savior. He looked at me with a look on his face. I wish I could describe it to you. He said, if you would have told me two and a half hours ago 
that I would feel like this, I would have called you a liar. I've never felt like this before in my life. And John went home that night and he poured all his alcohol down the toilet. And why did he do that? I didn't tell him to do that. I didn't tell him he should do that. I never even criticized him for drinking. I didn't say he should give it up. The Holy Spirit came into his heart and now said to him, John, that's your enemy. That's your enemy. He came back to see me the next week. He had poured his alcohol down the toilet. He said to me, I now realize that I never loved my wife a single day in 26 years of our marriage, and I want my, my marriage back more than anything else. And two weeks later, he brought his wife in with him to see me. And three weeks later, they went to their lawyers and tore up their divorce papers. That is what the power of God does when it comes into a person's life. That is what the law of the spirit of life does for us. But you see, you still have a choice. You can choose to sin, can't you? I used to think that, that when 2 Corinthians 5 says the new has come and the old is gone, that it meant our soul, our sinful habits would be all cleaned up. But that's not what it means. What it means is the old has gone and the new has come. And the new boss now gives you a choice. You see, as an unbeliever, you have no choice. Sin is all you can choose. You cannot please God. Anything that you can do cannot please God. Only when you become a believer. And now you can say to your will and to your emotions and your mind and your body, you're not going to live like that anymore. You're not going to do that anymore. You're going to follow Jesus. We're going to take God's word. This is the manual right here. I'm working with a guy. I've been discipling him for a year. He'd been in six federal prisons. And he gave his life to Christ in the shower of the last federal prison he was in. And you can't believe the difference that it's made in his life. And this is the manual. He comes in, he says, we got to keep studying the manual because that's the way I want to live. That is the way I want to live. Um, I run myself out of time. <laughs> So maybe Sam will invite me back and I'll finish that for you at some point in time. But I just, I want to encourage you as young people, uh, there are so many influences coming against you in society, so many things trying to discourage you from being what you are. You have within you the strength of God to live the life. I can't tell you how many people envy you because they can't do that. They don't have Christ in them. They want freedom. They want release from emotional pain. They don't know how to get it because they don't have Jesus. But you do. And you guys are ambassadors for God. You are, you are shining lights in the kingdom. And I just want to encourage you in your Christian walk and in your faith. I want to thank you for <clears throat> sitting and listening to me tonight. And I'm going to close our session in prayer here. Father, there is no God like you. You said, there is no one like me, there is not another, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols, for you are the Lord God Almighty. We thank you for this new year. Lord, you have given us hope, a living hope inside of us. You are in control. The politicians, the scientists, 
You're not in control, Lord. You are in control. And you are the one we look to. You are the one who will lead us and encourage us, Father. And we give you our thanks and praise for that this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.